Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. Happy nine years, Andrea. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say happy holidays, and I was all ready to be like, hey, jingle something. No. Nine years. Nine, Nine years of fact. Years. Congratulations. Cheers. Cheers. Huge. In honor of December kind of being a momentous month in so many ways and a busy month and a travel month for so many people. And on top of that, our podcast birthday, we uh-huh. like to pick a pretty big film to talk about. And today we're going to talk about Scream. And once we announced that we were doing Scream in the last episode, so many people reached out to me and were like, holy shit, you've never done Scream? I know. I feel like we've, like, referenced it tangentially. We've talked about intergenerational trauma. We've talked about the meta. We've tackled a couple of 90s films, and we've referenced Scream, but we've never done the episode. This is it. And I think for me, I always felt very trepidatious about doing this Uh as an episode, and I've got two reasons why. And and I feel like, you know, now doing this episode, I'm like, okay, maybe this is just finally shedding that, you know, snake coat of fear and repression. Um, So uh, one of them involves you. Oh, dear. Um, So early on when Andrea and I were becoming friends before FAC, I said to Andrea, and, you know, we were really hitting it off and like we're hanging out on our own and going on like friend dates and it was (laughs) wild. And I was like, gee, Andrea, you know, it's a great movie, Scream. And I can't remember exactly what you said, but it was a distinctive, meh. Ooh. And I was like, oh. Did that hurt your heart? Well, it just made me realize that cool people don't like Scream sometimes. <laughs> Like, I literally thought, like, everyone would love Scream in Uh the horror community. I thought we were all going to hold hands and skip through a field talking about how great Scream was. And when I entered this community, I would often reference Scream, you know, and people, like, really shat on it. Uh The other moment for me that really sticks out was um, there was a presentation I went to, and Andrea, I think you were at it, and I came to it a bit late, and it was a talk about horror movie posters. And so when I arrived, I walked into the you know place where it was happening, and the person there was talking about 90s teen horror, and they showed the poster for Scream. And I know what you did last summer, and the faculty, and all of those. And they were like, yeah. And in the 90s, it was just like fucking starlets on posters. Yeah. And then everyone started laughing, and I had a real, like, carry moment of, they're all going to laugh at you. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, Oh, this felt like a movie that I'm not allowed to like, question mark? Mm -hmm. And I spent a long time untangling those feelings, and so many of those feelings turned into the book I wrote, the 1990s teen horror cycle, Final Girls in a New Hollywood Formula, Um, because I was so tired of seeing this reaction of people who I respected within the community. And, like, you're allowed not to like a movie. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. I never took it personally, Andrea, that you didn't share this visceral love I have for this movie. But there was a real sentiment from other people that it was like a stupid fucking film and all these, you know, lamos liked it. And so I kind of buried it. And then with my book, I really just tried to plot out and put forward the narrative of like, actually, these films, as imperfect as they are in many ways, did actually contribute to the genre moving forward. And I started, you know, working on this episode and I was like, shit, I don't know how much I have left to say about Scream. And, uh, Andrea, am I really have to carry this one. And I have the most pages of notes. That's you do so have a lot of notes. notes. 
you do have a lot of notes, but and, and like in chief among my notes is I wanted to address that shade, that hate, that malignant tumor, that that Gabriel, <laughs> that Gabriel that looms over not just Scream but the '90s as an entire decade. And you know, I love your book. I love that when you write books, you have an impetus to shed light where there hasn't been light shed before. Like your book on New French Extremity was the first of its kind, and I haven't seen anything comparable on the '90s since. And it wasn't until I got involved with Rue Morgue around 2010 that I became aware that the horror films of the 90s were so looked down upon by the horror community. And I got the sense of this in conversation about those films, but I also found it documented in a couple of books that I was researching. There was one in particular I found at the Manor called The New Horror Handbook by A.S. Berman, who claimed that, you know, studio greed and stale imaginations combined toward a decade of uninspired sequels with a few exceptions, namely Misery, Jacob's Ladder, Cube, among others. But with regard to Scream specifically, Berman wrote that the film might have made good box office money, but he claimed that it destroyed Wes Craven's goodwill in the genre. And I quote, it was like watching the vicar who had spent years organizing charity events make off with the cash box. And I was like, are you mad that it did well? And so in preparing for this episode, like, what made you guys so mad? You know what I mean? Like, I was a bit dismissive. It didn't resonate with me as strongly as other horror movies that I watched around the same time that this came out. Indeed, I was hoping to discuss later about how it's a movie that my friends would put on at parties and stuff when my friends weren't horror fans. And I know that those same friends hadn't seen Halloween and hadn't seen Last House on the Left and hadn't seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and yet they resonated with Scream. So Scream transcends the genre in such specific ways that we're going to get into. But but yeah, there is definitely a really big shadow over it among a certain segment of horror fans. And, and to me, it really comes down to a generational thing. Mm-hmm. And it only took me growing up a little bit, now being in my kind of mid-30s, to separate that negative sentiment towards Scream. I'm yeah. just realizing that it's kind of a generational impasse yeah. for some people. Not all, not all, but for this group of, frankly, men who were in charge of, like, the Toronto horror scene or thought they were, they, you know, felt like they could swing their dicks around and, like, make fun of people who liked certain things or didn't like other things. They didn't like girls commenting on horror movies. They didn't like anything that came out in the 90s. They didn't like anything that subverted their precious, precious slasher tropes. And I think another thing that you point out in your book was, like, the easy accessibility of 90s horror had 80s fans missing that relative obscurity of hard-to-find VHS tapes. I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's obviously a lot of gatekeepering in the genre, but there's a lot of people who grew up and cut their teeth on 80s who were like, I had to work hard to be a horror fan. These millennials have it so easy. These millennials had this and this and that. And so, yeah, I think there is a generational stigma. I think there is misogyny. I think there's all that and more embedded in this story of Scream. And while it remains like it's it's not my favorite movie, I cannot deny the significance of this film. It is important, and I actually like it more every time I watch it. Oh, yay! Yeah. So one day, you and I could skip through a field holding hands being like, yeah, Scream! Yeah, yeah, yeah! Maybe. It's not off the table. No. I mean, I will skip... <laughs> 
<laughs> I will skip and hold hands with you for any stupid film. Okay. Well, I also just kind of wanted to share a little bit about my personal history with Scream, and I'll keep this really brief, but I just want to situate where I come from when I talk about Scream. Yeah. Um, so Scream is kind of a great film to talk about around the holidays because it was released in December 1996. Yes. And this was the big, like, shakeup at Dimension and Miramax. This was Bob Weinstein, noted villain Bob Weinstein, uh-huh. and his brother Harvey. We hate them. We hate them, but sometimes even terrible people have okay ideas. That's right. And they fucked with Wes Craven throughout the production of the film, and eventually they got this really incredible product at the end, and Bob Weinstein said, you know what? We're going to counter-program this and release it at the holidays. Harvey, you can have your English patience, you can mm-hmm. have your you know prestige Oscar films out at the same time. We're going to program something for the kids. Mm-hmm. And it came out, it like premiered, I think, like number three at the box office, and over the next several months, it just steadily rose. Mm-hmm. Word of mouth grew it until like the next year, Scream 2 came out, and it was this whole thing. So I was just kind of hearing about Scream. So it came out in 1996. I was 11. Yeah. And I asked for it on VHS, and I got it the next year. Ah. So it was in my hot little hands, Christmas 1997. <laughs> and I remember, like, we had to do family stuff that day, but, like, Boxing Day, I was like, scream, you're all mine. And I had a VHS, like, player and TV in my bedroom, and I put it in. I didn't even know what I was going to watch. I didn't know what to expect. It just, something called me, like, deep inside. And mm-hmm. I was like, Carol Ann at the TV. <laughs> like, uh-huh. <laughs> And this film is a foundation text for me. Mm-hmm. It is central to like who I am in many ways. When I was re-watching it this last week, I was practically mouthing along with it mm-hmm. because I knew it so well and it just, it resonates with me. It continues to resonate with me. It continues to hit all these really deep, dark places of myself. And like, it also introduced me to Nick Cave and the Bad oh. Seeds. Oh, yeah. Like, that was the first time I ever heard a Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds song. And then eventually when I kind of got into them a few years later and when I was in my teens, I was like, oh, yeah, it's that guy. And now Dang. I'm a huge Nick Cave fan. Yeah, you are. So, yeah, you know, take this uh, episode for whatever you will, uh, but don't at me with your, I don't like Scream because I don't give a fuck. <laughs> it is one of those films that is so huge that I cannot remember the first time I saw it. Like, it's it's just omnipresent. I can't remember the first time I saw Jaws because it it's just in culture. And you almost feel like you've seen it before you've seen it, you know, just because the hype was so real. Uh, most recently, I caught a drive-in screening of it. Mm. Just last October, there was this drive-in screening with a dancer accompaniment. And I got a pass through Rumor because they were like, yeah, social media, it, you know come for free, whatever. And basically, they would show the movie and performers would come out in ghost face costumes whenever the killings were happening. And they would, you know, just kind of jump up with their knives. And I got great photos. I got a couple of good scares a couple of times, which is fun and scary. But then they also did these weird couples dance routines whenever Sydney and Billy were like having a moment. Somebody would come out like in a wig and in a weird jock outfit. And the guy would like lift the girl like dirty dancing style. And it was quite clear to me that this screening wasn't intended for horror audiences because this movie transcends horror fandom. It is such a big fucking deal. This was just a family-friendly Halloween event. And I think that Scream speaks to so many of the anxieties that teens have, particularly teens in the 90s. And I think they're anxieties that we as millennials still have to this day. And so I feel like Scream, I'm hearing about it more and more in incredibly positive ways thanks to 
our generation and the generation coming up behind us, just changing the narrative. That's right. You know, adapt or die. That's right. The millennials have a bigger voice. Women in the genre have a bigger voice. And that has all lent some legitimacy to Scream that was not at all present when I got into the game. No. and, And I have to say, like, Critically, it was a really lauded film. Mm-hmm. It's generally very well liked in kind of mainstream critic circles. It holds up. It's because it's a great fucking movie. And then it was just this like little core of like angry men mm-hmm. who were so angry that like people could access this and they didn't see tits. Mm-hmm. And the guy who was fucking gatekeeping, because that's what Ghostface does. Mm-hmm. Name the killer in Friday the 13th. <laughs> Jason! Jason, Jason! I'm sorry. That's the wrong answer. No, it's not. No, it's not. It was Jason. Afraid not. No way. Listen, it was Jason. I saw that movie 20 goddamn times. Then you should know Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees, was the original killer. Jason didn't show up until the sequel. I'm afraid that was a wrong answer. You tricked me. Dum dum, you're dead. He fucking dies at the end. Yeah. Yeah, they don't like that. There's even a jab within here. It's like, oh, this is where we're supposed to see her tits. We're not seeing her tits. And it's like the gatekeeper neckbeards didn't even realize that it was... The call is coming from inside the house. They were the butt of the joke, and they did not like it. And that makes me like this film that much more. But we get it. So let's get into it. All right. 1996's Scream! Hello? Hello? Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Well, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far. Do you like scary movies? What's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie. Number one, you can never have sex. Hey, what are you doing this me? Never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. You get another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. He didn't make the rules. The police are always off track. If they watch Palm Night, they'd save time. He just kills by them. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. Scream. The film opens with tips. 
typical teen Casey, home alone and making popcorn. She's harassed on the phone by a caller who quizzes her on horror movies before threatening her life, eventually murdering herself and her boyfriend when she gets one wrong. The following day, we see the aftermath of the murder on the small town of Woodsboro. The media are all over it, particularly because it's the one-year anniversary of another spate of murders, in which Maureen Prescott was apparently killed by a jilted lover. The rest of the film concerns Maureen's traumatized daughter Sydney and her friends, who navigate being picked off one by one by the masked killer Ghostface with a keen awareness of how slashers operate in horror movies. Also in the equation are the well-meaning but ineffectual Deputy Sheriff Dewey and the sensationalist reporter Gail Weathers, who wrote a book on the previous murder and continues to cover the new developments. The movie culminates in a house party where the bodies pile up and Sydney decides to commit the cardinal sin of slashers and give it up to her boyfriend Billy. In the end, and this is a 25-year-old spoiler, folks, Billy is revealed to be the killer conspiring with his friend Stu. It turns out Sydney's mom had an affair with Billy's dad, driving his mother away. Gail and Sydney shoot Billy, while a wounded Dewey is taken away by ambulance. In the final frames, Gail films her news report on the night's happenings. So that's my synopsis, but my god, this story twists and turns and everything ties itself up with the neatest of bows. It's such a satisfying experience. It's so satisfying, and this film makes it look easy. Yeah. And it's not fucking easy. No. This amount of characters, the twists, the turns, the way the film itself plays with the audience, which we'll talk about, while keeping a lot of these slasher tropes. And as Andrew, as you were mentioning, I think, you know, for me, so much of what was great about Scream is this almost unknowing budding horror fan was, I didn't know what a slasher was, Mm -hmm. really. But this film kind of started to give me a language about it. And it also gave me, like, other films to watch. So as soon as, like, I finished Scream, I was like, I gotta go watch Halloween. Yeah. Prom night. This is great. This is for me. Which is something I didn't feel about. language Mm -hmm. that I didn't have access to because there wasn't the internet. I mean, I think we just used the internet to, like, dial 911. Yeah. That's what I learned (laughs) from the movie. Um, I've heard this film described as a parody of the slasher film but I feel like it's not. If you compare this with the film Scary Movie, which was the original working title, that is a parody. of This film is not making fun of slasher films. This film is a love letter to slasher films, and it stands on the shoulders of giants and, like, pulls it into a direction that it needed to go in order for horror to survive. Yeah, I think in just so many ways, Scream was really successful in playing with humor, playing with trauma, playing with fucking gore. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of people forget how gory this movie is. Oh, for sure. While also giving weight to, like, PTSD and trauma. Yeah. uh, While also being funny. And, you know, this is maybe the only movie I can think of that really successfully, in my mind, marries those elements into a cohesive worldview Mm -hmm. within a film. Yeah, I think often imitated, never replicated. The closest thing I can think of is maybe Cabin in the Woods. But again, like, that happened a decade later, and that kind of did the same thing, commenting on a different era and a different group of teens. Uh, And we did an episode of that. Early on. I'll link to it. You've probably heard it. So I 
I mentioned that this film is not a parody of the horror film. It is the quintessential meta horror film. And so just to deconstruct the term meta to start, in ancient Greek, meta means beyond or after, i.e. metaphysics or whatever it is, what's his nuts is planning to do with Facebook. In terms of art, meta means it's self-aware. It's self-referential. It's a horror movie that makes overt reference two horror movies. And in fact, I was looking back, issue 176 of Room Org was my very first issue as editor, and we ran a feature on fictional horror fans in pop culture because Chainsaw and Dave from Summer School were having a revival at the time. Do you remember Summer School? No. Because it's not a horror film. Summer School was a 1987 slapstick bro comedy, and there were a pair of horror fans in this environment, and they use their horror fandom to propel the narrative, but it's not a horror movie. And so was Morgan Stewart's Coming Home, which was out the same year, where John Cryer plays the oddball horror fan's son in a conservative family. There's Gabe from The Office, Fred from the TV sitcom Sanford and Son. These guys were often cast as the weirdos of the narrative for their horror love, and they were always white males, and they were always the butt of the joke. So it was like, horror fans are this. And if you weren't this, you weren't a horror fan. And I think all of that goes into why Scream felt like such a warm hug for the, you know, female millennial horror fan, that there's room for you here. And in Scream, like, yes, Randy is a bit of a weirdo. I feel like he's cast as a bit of an oddball. But even the more normal teens like Casey and Tatum, they all have a solid awareness of the slasher and its tropes. They're not dum-dums. And Scream doesn't just acknowledge these slasher tropes, it fucks with them. And as you talk about in your book, it provides a feminist corrective to many of the sexist and limiting roles for women in the slasher. Oh, now I want to go reread my book. <laughs> you should. It's wonderful. <laughs> oh, thank you. I feel like it was so beautifully illustrated in the way Sydney's mother's murder was almost a conventional slasher narrative. You know, she had sex and she was punished for it. For Sydney to do the same and survive is the ultimate feminist revision of the final girl. It was what the final girl needed to stay relevant past the 80s to a new third wave feminist generation. Absolutely. So I would like to enter into this conversation uh, an old friend of the pod, one Carol Clover, the author of Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Endlessly cited. Endlessly. <laughs> Even though the final girl has been turned on its head, it all comes back to Carol Clover. And Clover wrote this book in 1992, and we've referenced this book so many times on this podcast. I can't even imagine. I don't even want to do it again. Um, but but we're going it. to. Um, <laughs> and here we are. Um, and I think, you know, we'll put back in the caveats of this was written in 1992. Mm -hmm. As I read this book, every time I kind of go back to it, I'm like, shit, I don't think Clover really likes horror films. I think she's interested by them, but generally is unimpressed with them. You know, yeah, I've never felt, insofar as she's always cited for being the expert in typifying the final girl, I don't always agree with her. No, and she puts so much stock into, like, Freudian theory. And Andrea and I, I think, I'm going to speak for you for a second, find Freudian theory pretty much bullshit because Freud was just like, you know what I think? Women are wacky. You know what I think? I want to fuck my mom. Yeah, and so he just took all this stuff that he felt and made it into, like, theorem, mm -hmm. and then other people have just extrapolated on that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there is some way to some stuff he says, and sometimes it's really interesting, and, you know, we've cited it, but Clover puts a lot of stock into it, so every time I go back to Men, Women, and Chainsaws, I'm always a bit like, ah. 
Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes. But again, one of the strengths of men, women, and chainsaws is the codifying that Clover does yes. in her book. So I thought what would be useful to, you know, really jump into the discussion of Scream would be to take the tenets that Clover defines of the slasher film. Yeah. Give you a really brief summary of what she has to say about them and then talk about how Scream applies and often subverts these tropes. Cool. So, trope one, the killer. Clover starts with a reference to the end of Psycho when the psychiatrist explains that Norman Bates's gendered split personality has something to do with his homicidal tendencies. Paging Dr. Freud, am I right? Um, then she applies this gendered reading to things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where Leatherface is put in women's clothing at certain points, as well as pointing to the fact that the mother is conspicuously absent from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. Clover states that female killers are rare and have motives that stem from when they have been wronged by a man. Mm -hmm. But she kind of says at the end, to quote, killers are emphatic misfits and outsiders. That's all. (laughs) So to bring it into Scream, I think it's actually completely unintentional, but rather fascinating that when Billy... Mr. Billy Loomis is revealed to be the killer. He opens with a psycho quote. We all go a little mad sometimes. No, Billy! So, Billy and Stu... So much has been made of this relationship between them. Mm -hmm. There are queer readings of it, a lot of stuff about Billy we're going to get into in this episode, but they function really differently. And that, to me, is because their motivations are so tied to misogyny. Mm -hmm. Billy is deeply angry at Sid's mother for breaking up his family and causing Mm -hmm. his mother to leave. Don't worry, Mrs. Loomis is coming back and scream to everyone. And Stu, there's always some bullshit reason to murder your girlfriend. Peer pressure. He murders his ex-girlfriend. He murders his current girlfriend. That, like, it's there's a problem here, Stu. And both of these men, as I kind of piece apart this film and, you know, through life experience, they seem so angry at women not conforming to roles of service, and it really pisses them off. Mm -hmm. Um, Another kill that I find interesting that they do is Principal Himbry. I think they really do that to just kind of be like, fuck you to the, you know, status quo, but Mm -hmm. also to cause chaos confusion that kind of dissipates the party later on. And then, of course, it's like the fun nod within the film that the part is played by Henry Winkler, who is, Mm -hmm. of course, the Fonz. And I think another point to mention about Billy and Stu and queer readings, and I don't want to go too deep into it because, you know, we're not gay. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a lot of other podcasts that have tackled this topic in so many ways and so many articles and books. So I want to leave it to the experts. Mm -hmm. But this time, I kind of had it in the back of my head, and I was just like, wow, Ghostface pops out of a lot of closets throughout this film. <laughs> like in Sid's house with Principal Himbury. Interesting. Just, just putting you know, it out there. No, going no, real subtle. Okay, the next trope. Yes. The terrible place. Dun, dun, dun. So this Clover cites as the houses in Texas Chainsaw Massacre or the Myers house in Halloween. You can also build this out into Camp Crystal Lake, Elm Street, places where trauma has happened and where it is going to be revisited again and again and again. So I think you can look at the terrible place within Scream as Woodsboro, this small, very affluent town. Mm-hmm. And um, where are the parents? Nowhere. Nowhere. No parents. If I can say one um, thing that Scream led me astray on was that I thought I would be left alone way more as a teen. <laughs> 
or you're not. No, no, no. But um, absentee parents. However, I do talk about this a lot in my book, and I think one of the big changes that 90s teen horror makes to the slasher uh, genre is it takes the terrible place from a physical location to a site within the final girl. Mm. Final girls are almost always the site of their own trauma Mm -hmm. and the trauma that goes out within the world. So Sydney kind of as being this emblematic next generation after her mother. Um, You know, she's carrying the trauma for that. Unbeknowing to her, Billy's still enraged at her. Right. um, And attempting to get close to her to basically fuck with her. You see this again, and I know what you did last summer, Urban Legend, you know, on and on and on. And it comes up in Scream where, you know, we don't ever, you know, see a flashback of Sydney's mom, but we hear other girls talking about it. Oh, well, Sydney's mom was a total slut. Yeah. And that's kind of the pall that is cast over these kids. It's also a hallmark of Wes Craven, intergenerational trauma and the sins of the parents being bestowed upon the next generation is something that comes up again and again. Yeah, and the fact that the killers really utilize Sydney's PTSD and manipulate her into forwarding the narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, like, they I think very much plan for Billy to sleep with Sydney. Mm-hmm. They kind of uh, nag her enough throughout the film that she's like, I'm going to give it up. I'm yeah. going to give up my V-card and this is going to be it and it's done because I am not my mother. Yeah, they're trying to box her into the 80s slasher archetypes and she subverts them and fucks them over and it's great. So let's talk about weapons. The next tenant for Clover. So penetrating. Uh, for Clover, victims will use guns, phones, but they almost always fail. Mm-hmm. And you see that little psych out with Gail where she can't get the safety off. And then she says, I guess I remember the safety that time, you bastard. And then, of course, Clover cites that killers use knives, hammers, axes, anything that would necessitate a physical proximity to the victim. Now, I kind of picked up on this time for Ghostface. Obviously, it's the hunting knife. Mm-hmm. When is the other time in this film that hunting comes up? You know, you've got that scene in the quad of the high school after all the kids have been interviewed. And, um, you know, it's Tatum and uh, Sid and the guys. And um, they're starting to say, like, oh, did they ask you about hunting? They asked me about hunting. Um, and Tatum is like, why would they ask you if you like to hunt? Because their bodies were gutted. Thank you, Randy. They didn't ask me if I liked to hunt. It's because there's no way a girl could have killed them. That is so sexist. The killer could easily be female. Basic instinct. And then they mention, you know, why is it hunting? You need, like, the hunting knife because they were gutted. And then I think it's Randy who says, it takes a man to do something like that. And so you already have this very gendered thing happening mm-hmm. of this, you know, really aggressive, incredibly, like, dripping in toxicity masculinity mm-hmm. coming to the forefront because, you know, you're equating hunting with hunting these young women and some men. And it's all really, like, gendered and scary. Again, as I mentioned, Gail and Sydney are both successfully able to use the gun. That's mm-hmm. a huge turning point. And then another weapon I wanted to talk about was the phone. Yes. The concealing of the voice and the giving out kind of limited info that, like, tips the victims off that they're serious. So, um, you know, when Casey's death, they call her Blondie. That's a big turning point in that scene. You know, when they mention Sydney's mother in an upcoming scene, there is a sense that these kills are premeditated and they're not random. It's not just Jason wandering through Camp Crystal Lake mm-hmm. killing whoever the fuck. And again, this is a verbal killer. It's not Freddy Krueger where he's cracking jokes and being funny all the time. Ghostface, throughout all of the films, 
especially in the original, uses emotional violence as well as physical. Mm -hmm. He traumatizes victims before he kills them. Yeah, he makes it feel like it's their fault for not knowing the answer. We talked about this a little bit last episode on Mm -hmm. Jigsaw. We did. Before you move on from weapons, Sydney wields an umbrella at one point. Yeah, she does. I feel like that's almost a nod to Halloween. And the uh, knitting needles, like the resourcefulness is another trope that we're going to get to, right? Yeah. Because sometimes you're just in a hall closet and you're like, what can I do to stab my fucking boyfriend? Everyone's got an umbrella by the door. It's true. But mine are little collapsible ones. I probably need oh, a point Oh, not one. mine. I'll give you one. Okay, great. Before you go. Great. Um, penultimate tenant of slashers, victims. Clover states, they transgress. Sex is what Clover highlights, but drinking and drugs also applies. They're often young, nubile, and they die because of that. Boys die quickly. Girls take a longer time to die. So we've already alluded to Casey's opening death. Uh, Casey is played by Drew Barrymore. It was quite the scandal at the time that she died. Very so Hitchcockian early. to have a yeah. big name off in the first couple of minutes. And so brutally and so violently, and there was talks of like the M. PAA being like, you can't have the innards moving. Oh, like, yeah. All that kind of stuff. I kept reading about how the MPAA's notes were always so vague. They didn't tell exactly what to cut. Just, it's too much. Just yeah. dial it back. What the fuck am I supposed to do with that feedback? And of course, KNBFX was working on Scream. So if we have the deaths that you got, there's some really good gore happening. They're great. And I think Casey's opening creates a really immediate instability for the formula because to our mind, she hasn't done anything wrong. No. She hasn't transgressed. By the end of the film, we know it's because there is always some bullshit reason to kill your girlfriend. Others are dispatched to create confusion or to isolate Sydney. I think that's kind of why Tatum dies. I think there's some misogyny in there and Stu mm-hmm. just is a horrible person. But also, Tatum was incredibly protective of her friend. Mm-hmm. She was a good friend, which is so nice friend. to see in slashers when so many chicks are so catty. And likable and funny mm-hmm. and really empathetic to Sydney. I always think the scene where um, it's a really brief scene, but they're talking, I guess, on um, Tatum's front porch and she says to Sydney, I think maybe your mom was just a really unhappy woman. Aww. And it's like she's not judging her, but she's trying to like get Sydney into some kind of realization. Yeah. I think it's quite touching. Um, now, I want to talk about the sequels a little bit because the sequels, really interestingly for the Scream franchise, mimic the patterns of the first film, whether it's through literal names of victims to tropes like familiar faces biting it in the first five to, you know, 15 minutes, let's say. This allows Scream, in my opinion, to create its own framework within the genre, but it also mainly creates a way for the villains to punish their survivors. We'll talk about the survivors in one minute. Scream overtly repeats the cycle of victims, and in many ways, I think this is a comment on the slasher structure. Yeah. You know, repeating the kind of people who are getting murdered and murdered. However, it's taking this framework from the first Scream film and kind of reapplying it, remixing it, doing different things, but it's always following a certain pattern. I think there's a central anxiety to re creating the formula in different ways, not only to punish the survivors, but for the killers to gain notoriety by creating a narrative for themselves. At the end, I'm sure some people don't like it, but I kind of love in the end when the killers give their spiel about why they're doing it. Oh, yeah. And it's always for notoriety or to punish Sydney or to do something. And um, she always 
fucking subverts that. I love that. She always survives, and this, there's a lot of survivors in this film. Like, it, it pitted against slasher films of yesteryear. I feel like, you know, a franchise was always in the cards for Scream from the very beginning, which I'm sure we're going to get to, but um, yeah, the survivors survive, and they take their trauma, and they use it to survive, whereas, and I think you point this out in your book, in the 80s slashers, if you survive the first film, you didn't last long in the next. No, I mean, see um, Alice from Friday the 13th, see, uh, Nancy Thompson and Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, various iterations of Laurie Strode. I forget which iteration we're on right now, but, you know. Speaking of final girls, the final girl. So the final girl and survivors, as I've called this little section of my notes, Clover uh, states that the final girl survives. She faces death. And Clover spends a lot of time, and I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before on the podcast, about the gender transference within the final girl. Um, you know, she's smart, she's capable, and kind of takes on some masculine, again, quote-unquote masculine qualities in order to fight the big bad mm-hmm. to fight the killer within these. And then she drops the knife, she drops the knitting needles, whatever it is, and she kind of reverts back to a more feminine figure within the film. So that's what Clover terms as the gender transference within the final girl. Mm-hmm. So as Andrew's already mentioned, Sid loses her virginity. And while the killers throughout the series are obsessed with her, it's the trifecta of Sid, Dewey, and Gale who must work together directly or sometimes indirectly to solve the mystery of the killer and subdue them. And I think it's a really interesting thing that the three of them are constantly surviving these films. Mm-hmm. They're, they're hurt. They're wounded. They've Mm -hmm. got scars. Um, They're shot, stabbed, everything you can, but they care about each other enough within these moments to work together. And I also think it's a really interesting trifecta because you've got Sydney, the survivor, Mm -hmm. Dewey, who is law enforcement, Mm -hmm. and then Gail, who is the media. Yes. And they each kind of have these little like triangulations that make them different. So Sydney's truly just trying to survive and, Mm -hmm. like, keep in touch with her own narrative and, like, refine her narrative so it's something she can live with. Um, You know, Dewey's trying to keep everyone safe, often failing, but trying. And Gail is really trying to, you know, starting out shaping the narrative, but then she gets more involved and actually becomes really helpful. That's right. Yeah, they are the final girl of this film. And when has a slasher had three final girls, one of which was a dude? Never. Until Scream. Amazing. So with regard to that trifecta of the different institutions present in this film, the role of media is so beautifully personified by Gail Weathers. She's not a minor supporting character at all, and her every action speaks to the larger role of media in real-life tragedy as well as the mainstream reaction to horror fiction. And I love how she's initially set up as the villain. Like, we see her through Sydney's eyes as this self-serving, opportunistic nightcrawler, uh, which is the term that I use from that movie. But have you ever heard of the term muckraker? No. <laughs> came up in my research. Like, for investigative journalists, basically, the term was used for American journalists and writers in the early 20th century who spun narratives that made people in power look bad. And so, like, it can be used as praise for an investigator who really digs deep or pejoratively as someone looking to cause scandal. And I feel like Gail Weathers kind of embodies both of this, and yet we see the value in it in that, you know, she winds up cracking the case. She not only redeems herself by putting her life at risk, but she arrives at the truth of the earlier murders as well. Yeah, before even, you know, 
too many of the killings get going. She already believed that Cotton Weary, uh, the brief appearance by Liv Schreiber, yeah. uh, is innocent. Right. And that there was, you know, Sydney got it wrong. Yeah. And it's such an interesting tension between them mm-hmm. uh, because you like Sydney, you're on her side. She is our protagonist, but she got something wrong. And those seeds of doubt are planted so early on. And uh, it's not an indictment against Sid. It's more of a like, what were you protecting? Yeah. By saying Cotton Weary was the killer because there's something so much darker at play yeah. that it was almost easier to say that because that's how Billy and Stu staged it. But Gail was on to something else. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, part of Sydney's coming of age as this final girl, like part of her um, recognizing her power, so to speak, is to look back and be like, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And my trauma affected me in certain ways. But, you know, I i have overcome it in the yeah. end. And, and I will say another great thing about the franchise overall is how it creates these redemption arcs for various characters. Yeah. Um, like Cotton Weary comes back in a really big way in Scream 2, and then kind of in a minor way in Scream 3. But again, it's a really interesting trajectory for a character that would have been kind of forgotten about. Mm-hmm. And again, it's so funny that Liev Schreiber shows up with this brief, like, to call it a cameo is generous. Mm-hmm. But then he's like this incredible actor, so you get him really like flexing more in the sequels. And mm-hmm. it's so, I think this franchise and this film loves its characters mm-hmm. and it wants us to love them. It appreciates them. They're not disposable. And the few who are disposed of, you feel it. Oh God, I felt Tatum hard. Even Casey, like you said. And I, I think that there's such a delicious irony in the fact that Billy and Stu address the idea of horror inspiring psychopaths. He's sick for fucks. You've seen one too many movies. Nah, Sid, don't you blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos not only are they touching upon moral panics against slasher movies of the past, but Scream also found itself at the center of numerous true crime controversies that were so specific to the film. I have a couple of notes here about January 98, Mario Padilla and Samuel Ramirez stabbed Mario's mother 45 times, claiming to have been inspired by Scream. They even claimed that they planned to purchase ghost face costumes and a voice changer thing to do a proper scream spree. Uh, Later in January 1999, Ashley Murray was stabbed repeatedly in the back of the head by his friends, Daniel Gill and Robert Fuller. Murray survived and said that they had seen the movie shortly before the attack and drawings of Ghostface were found on their stuff. And then, of course, after the shooting at Columbine High School in 1999, the United States Senate Commerce Committee held a hearing about Hollywood's marketing of films to youths focusing specifically on horror films and they actually showed the opening scene of Scream as an example in the hearing. So the meta value of this film goes even beyond what is in the film, the intertextuality of the fact that, you know, Wes Craven had such a fight with the MPAA. It's almost why he didn't even want to take on this film to begin with, but he fought for it and fought for it, and all this bullshit came up again and again and again, and it's just a trademark of the moral panic. And I think Columbine is a really... Interesting isn't the right term, but the foreshadowing or mirroring of Columbine within this kind of white male aggression that Billy and Stu have is really prevalent. And I've read stuff where people have said, you know, you can see this white male anxiety present in Scream that you can kind of in some ways carry over to Columbine. I think it's also important to note that the Columbine shootings deeply affected Scream 3. Mm. Scream 3 had, you know, a 
treatment written by Kevin Williamson and Dimension Films got really scared off, as did a lot of horror filmmakers at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, horror films tanked, they got put on VOD, like they got, you know, shuffled around in reaction to Columbine because yeah. it was so traumatizing yes. to everyone. And uh, so there was an initial treatment of Scream 3 that had to do with Matthew Lillard's character, Stu, surviving and then kind of having this cult in Woodsboro and, you know, bringing it all back. But that felt way too close to Columbine. So then you get Scream 3, which I think is actually like a pretty good film and a pre-Me Too film mm. that was indicting um, Hollywood sexual assaults and misogyny while made by Dimension Films. Mm. It's a fascinating film, not a perfect film, but a really interesting fucking film. And if you're interested in reading more about Columbine, Andrea and I lived through this. We were in our youth when it happened. Um, I certainly remember a lot of the stuff that happened around it and the anxieties that, you know, kind of got brought forth because of it. Um, there's a really fantastic book by an author by the name of Dave Cullen, and it's just called Columbine. We'll link it in the show notes. And I read it when I was writing my book, and I quote it kind of throughout. And it's one of the scariest books I've ever read. Really? It, it's beautifully written, and it's so haunting and eerie. It's a really incredible book, so I highly recommend that if you are interested in this phenomenon. Now, I don't know about you, Andrea, but my parents were avid news watchers. Okay. So in the mid-90s, I'd come home from school and, you know, uh, my parents would be occasionally working at home or whatever. And every day for like, what was it, like a year, year and a half, I'd get home and the O.J. Simpson trial was on. Right. That was, I believe, the first kind of fully broadcast trial. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to like talk as we talk about media, is talk about media in the 90s yes. and how it started as, you know, major networks and then, you know, more cable networks came into it and then the internet came into play. The 90s are a real decade of transition for media. So much stuff happened in it. And I came of age during that time. I mean, the 90s for me were from when I was five to 15. Yeah. So I saw a ton of shit change. Um, and I think it's important to note that Gail is a reporter for Top Story, which is like a tabloid kind of news thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, be similar to something like hard copy or inside edition, but they're kind of aping on something called the news program. So those were programs on major networks like uh, 60 Minutes or 2020 that kind of had multiple stories within one hour and they could often cover true crime or something like that. Major stories happening within the country, particularly America. Mm-hmm. And so the tabloid versions of that, let's say in this case, like a top story, mm-hmm. are the more scandalized versions of that. So they would obviously cover true crime. They would also cover uh, celebrity scandals. And then the news magazine shows started to take on some of those stories and legitimize them more. So those outlets like the hard copy or inside edition started to fade away. And one of the important things about the 90s is there was still a thing called appointment television. If you wanted to see your favorite show, you had to be there. Nine o'clock p.m. There was no PVR. Nope. There was no streaming. There was no binge. No YouTube. Nope. You had to be there and you had to watch it. So there was a kind of communal experience around media. Mm-hmm. We could all consume it and you'd have different opinions about it. That's why you get like the water cooler show. You go yeah. to work or school the next day and be like, did you see that? Did you see that? But you'd already kind of had your own personal experience with it before you shared it with other people. You weren't tweeting about it online. You weren't doing whatever the fuck we had to do. I wasn't having to mute words on Twitter to avoid spoilers. 
the good old days. Yeah, when I was 10. Um, And so the O.J. Simpson trial was such a big thing because it married true crime with celebrity. And then we all got like a first row view into the trial if you had cable. So that's when a lot of people started getting CNN and Mm. MSNBC or Fox News. And everyone started to figure out their angles more and more. Um, So media became more specialized. It became less general. And I think also important during that time, like people were making zines. So there were still like underground media and underground stories being told, but they were hard to get hold of. You can just go find a blog somewhere. Mm-hmm. And another really important moment in the 90s is in January 1998, when the gossip and news site or blog, the Drudge Report, broke the story of Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky. Oof. It wasn't the New York Times. It wasn't CNN. It was like the scandalized little dirtbag website yeah. that did it. And I think like you were talking about in the final moments of this film, because it doesn't end on Sydney. It doesn't end on a dead body. It ends on Gail. Yeah, it ends on the story. And she is starting to frame it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think now that we've got social media, one of the incredible things about social media is the way people can take control of narratives. But back then, she was like on the fucking scene. She was part of it. She survived it. So she really got to shape the narrative. And you see that tension with that character throughout the rest of the franchise. Mm-hmm. You know, Gail's version of the events which get turned into the stab films versus Sid's own lived experience. Yeah. Do you know, I was at the grocery store just last weekend, and on the cover of one of those tabloids was Jean Benet Ramsey. Yeah. I was like, still? Like, this was in the early... We've talked about true crime a lot on this podcast and how it's blown up to what it was, but it really started in the 90s. And I was thinking, actually, like, if somehow Scream was coming out today, like the first Scream ever, mm-hmm. Gail would not be, like, a reporter. She would be a podcaster. Totally. Ugh. And, God, I would really like to see that Stu movie that never got made. You know, incel culture. I've heard rumors that... That Scream 5 is going to be that? I'm really trying to stay away from stuff about Scream 5 because I want to go in fresh. Uh-huh. But I've heard the rumors and Matthew Lillard seems to be playing a little dancey dancer on okay. this. Well, well, I would not be angry at that because that story sounds fucking interesting and I actually dug around and found interviews with him when I kind of pieced together. Really? Uh, it's in my book. You can read it. It's important and I feel like there's a smattering of films that tackle the incel cult, like uh, Ghostbusters 2016 comes to mind and it's a legitimate thing that we need to be more informed of and aware of and watch out for among our children and our peers and ourselves. And so to sweep that under the rug for the sake of protecting us from it is just so mind-boggling to me and counterintuitive. And as somebody who is, you know, in a Gail Weathers muckraker role trying to cover the next stream, they're not giving away shit. So don't worry about spoilers, at least at this point. I haven't even watched the trailers. I don't want to see the trailers. I just I want to go in fresh. They're, They've yeah, already got my money. It's fine. It's not a Blumhouse joint. You're okay. <laughs> so I'd like to talk a little bit more about the moral panic and specifically what the moral panic scenario was like in the 90s. Because moral panics weren't always conservative bullshit, pearl-clutching, and hand-wringing. It's got this pejorative connotation today. Moral panics used to be rooted in real social conflict, and so sociology looked at it through the lens of deviance. And this goes all the way back to, I mean, obviously the Inquisition and witch hunts were very serious and real in their consequences. They were the result of Catholicism losing its grip on the population, and so they punished anything that further threatened the power of the church. In the modern age, where moral panic is spread by mass 
mass media, the early moral panics of the 1960s were in response to legitimate social change and cultural revolution. But they were misguided. Like, for example, the hippie subculture movement. The moral panic was against drugs, the war on drugs. But the actual conflict at the root of it was that people were using drugs and the reasons why they used them were revolutionary. Hippies rejected traditional work and discipline rules. They stood for hedonism and personal freedom. That was the real revolutionary conflict that the moral panic was based upon. But we can't outlaw revolutionary attitudes. We can only outlaw cannabis. And so I think that like horror movies were at the center of this. Something's wrong with the kids and it's horror movies. No, something is wrong with the kids and we need to look at the bigger picture. And at the center of all this is um, UK writer Stanley Cohen. And he was the one who introduced the phrase moral panic in his 1972 book, Folk, Devils, and Moral Panics. And he applied it specifically to British subculture studies of the 60s and 70s, where there was that stupid rivalry between the mods and the rockers. I'm sure your dad has My something. My dad was that, a mod. He was a mod. And what does that mean? Did he talk about the mod riots? Uh, no, I just know he got into like knife fights. Really? And that one time we were... Uh, we because had- his shoes were pointy? Probably. And shiny. Uh, but one time <laughs> when we had some bank, when I was younger, we went on holiday to Florida. I think like Disney World or something. Again, I was quite young. And I remember it was so hot. My British father, while we were laying by the pool, actually took off his shirt in public. And while so many people were blinded by the paleness of his skin, <laughs> uh, my mother looked at him and was like, Peter, what is that scar on your rib? Later on, I was like, do you guys not like what happens? <laughs> but uh, that, that Aside. But you also didn't want to know. No, but I also don't want to know. And my dad was like, it's from when I got knifed in a fight. Jesus, mercy yeah. for being a mod. Yeah. No, I'm sure he antagonized someone. Dang. Okay, well, anyway, it wasn't fun, a bullshit story. rivalry. Next time you see my dad, ask to see the knife scar. Fucking right I will. I thought you were going to say that he had a crazy mod tattoo, which I can't even, like, what, Austin Powers on his... No, nice scar. So the stages of the moral panic, as per Stanley Cohen, are one, something happens and it is defined as a threat to social values. Two, that threat is amplified via mass media. Three, a sense of social anxiety and concern sets in. And four, the gatekeepers of morality, i.e. experts, leaders, politicians, respond to the threat and perhaps instate new laws or policies or perhaps quash movie sequels that should have been made and couldn't be. And then five, the original condition either submerges into the subconscious or evaporates. And Cohen is a little vague here, and this is where all of his contemporaries are kind of like, well, moral panics are this and that now. But I think the value in this model is that it starts with something genuinely disruptive for good or for bad, and then it becomes something else in the hands of the moral elite. So going back to Scream, I feel like the film itself depicts several stages of this model while also looking back on itself. There's the original murders that happened to Sydney's mother, the fallout of those murders, i.e. Sydney's trauma, um, coming to terms with wrongfully fingering Cotton Weary, <laughs> and then the rea- You like fingering? I knew you'd do that. And then the reaction to that reaction, i.e. Gail's book, and the fact that it all leads up to Sydney not only breaking this cycle, but coming of age in such a powerful way. I feel like that's what makes the film so satisfying on so many levels for me. Yeah. And she fucking punches Gail in the face. Yeah. Bam! 
bitch goes down. And then they wind up friends. Yeah. You know, like these institutions don't always play along, but eventually you see that they're all pieces of the puzzle that are necessary. Well, and I think it's like, um, you know, that saying, what you do in the dark always comes to light. Mm. The ultimate villains do eventually show themselves. Yeah. It may never happen as soon as you want it to or as quickly as you want it to in the way you want it to, but they always tend to show themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you've got this confluence of individuals kind of fighting against each other and for their own interests, and then they are all cornered in Stu's house, yeah. and they have to work together. Mm-hmm. And then each film kind of has them splitting away and coming back together, because what happened in Woodsboro was so momentous. Mm-hmm. And it defined them. It made a mark in cinema. And so it was kind of always trying to grapple with that original inciting incident. Mm-hmm. And it defined the 90s. Yeah. Which I want to talk about further. You want to talk about sex in the 90s? Please. So. I wasn't having it in the 90s, I can tell you that. No. But I was learning about it in the 90s. I was learning about it through media. That's right. In the 90s. We've talked on this podcast about how teenagers are a social construction and how to be a teen is largely informed by the media we consume. And, you know, Kevin Williamson wasn't a teen when he wrote this film, but I can't believe how accurately he depicts how teens talk how they think, and he gives them a lot of credit that a lot of movies don't. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, 12 when I first saw this, as I mentioned, and I was like, oh, wow, this all seems very complicated and strange. And I'm like, now as I'm watching it in my 30s, I'm like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah, check, check, check. It's 25 years later. That's momentous. Ugh. I'm just crumbling into dust right now. Um, but Sex in the 90s was really interesting, and I spent a lot of time and research for my book looking at sex in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, again, as we talk about uh, media kind of becoming more present in our everyday lives, the internet and everything else, there are a lot of scandals that happened in the 90s that had to do with sex. Um, You know, to kick it off, there was the Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas hearings and accusations where Anita Hill accused now Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas of uh, sexual advances and improprieties. We can see really clear allusions to that with more recent, the Kavanaugh and Blasey Ford situation, Um, all the way through to Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. There were also public sex scandals which dumped on women. So that's Lorena Bobbitt. That's Amy Fisher. You know, these women are having sex or angry about sex. Jilted women yeah. turning to violence. Or this young girl who is the Long Island Lolita. Like, mm. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> She was a child, yeah. so let's all fucking calm this down. But that was tabloid fodder. Yeah. There was an audience for it. Mm-hmm. There's a real tension in the 90s when I think about it between sex positivity and sexual anger. Yeah, and shaming. Mm-hmm. And I think you also have to keep in mind that we're coming out of, and still, quite frankly, in the AIDS pandemic yeah. um, during that time. So there was still a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear around it. However, what I found in my research is that more and more, as women got more opportunities Opportunities to have platforms and to talk about their experiences, there was a lot more conversations about rape, 
sexual assault, sexual violence, partner violence, or just even sex in general. And you can see that through popular music. Like, I'm sure you remember in uh, that great documentary about Kathleen Hanna, the punk singer, mm-hmm. when she talks about, you know, wanting to be a poet, to have her say in the world. And um, a mentor told her, no, you got to be a singer because then people will listen to you. Mm-hmm. And you can say that. So she kind of set all of this anger and frustration against punk songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very instrumental in Riot Girl. Um, then you have Alanis Morissette singing about giving head in a theater. I did not know what head in a theater meant in no. 1995. I thought it was a cross-eyed bear. Yeah. Um, there was, you know, the girl power movement um, that was very sex positive with Spice Girls. Mm-hmm. Um, there was Lilith Fair, which is a little bit kumbaya. And then everyone from Garbage to probably the most haunting song I've ever heard. It's by Tori Amos, and it's called Me and a Gun. Mm. And it is about her rape. And it is a cappella, and it's haunting, and I'm a huge Tori Amos fan, and I probably only heard that song two or three times because it's it's a hard listen. Um, But then again, you know, these female narratives saying, this happened to me, this affected me, and other women starting to feel like, yeah, this was my experience. My experience is valid. It was conflated with things like, I don't know if you remember the Kate Moss, Calvin Klein ads. Mm. where she was very young and very sexualized and kind of like pressing her naked top half against Marky Mark. And then there's also, you know, Cindy Crawford and the Pepsi ads, like sexily drinking Pepsi and it's all condensed and like dripping off of her. Mm. There's a real push and pull for female sexuality. Yeah. Very narrowly defined boundaries of how sexy you could be before People started attributing other stuff. Exactly. And I think, while not as conservative, Ella 1980s slasher, Scream is not exactly sex positive. What it does do is it speaks to toxic relationships, abusive partners, sexual violence, and PTSD. I think a really incredible moment in the film, and I think I put a paragraph in it in my book, about um, the sex scene between Billy and Sid, Uh when the camera actually pans around as Sydney takes her top off. So you don't see her breasts. That's right. um, But you see Billy's reaction to them. Mm -hmm. And this kind of leering gaze feels, to me anyway, quite predatory. Mm -hmm. It feels very, I don't know, it feels very male gazy, but the mm-hmm. film itself is starting to subvert that. It's starting to take the camera away from like just being in Sydney's perspective to showing something outside of that, to showing what she sees and allowing the audience to kind of have their own thoughts about that. Right. Yeah. We're not seeing the breasts. We're seeing his reaction to them, and then it cuts to the guys being like, oh, titties. Yeah. I would like to uh, bring in a piece right now, which we're going to link to in the show notes, because it's a great piece, and I just pulled a quote from it that I want to share, and it's from friend of the pod, Jude Ellison S. Doyle. Uh, they wrote an article on Medium called The Banality of Skeevil, and uh, it's about Skeet Ulrich in 90s teen horror, so the craft and scream. And they also get into this very topic in their book, Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers. Yes. Yeah. I love that book. Oh, so good. This is a quote from the Medium piece. Again, this will be linked in the show notes. He played the same kind of guy, cute, likable, and a steamroller of horrific, violent misogyny. He's someone the heroine doesn't know to fear until he almost crushes her. A skeet Ulrich villain is never scary, not at first. He's just a little bit off. He's a little too handsy, a little too temperamental, a little too prone to shame or guilt trip the girl who doesn't want to have sex with him. He says bitch a little too easily. He shows up outside your window when you don't expect it. In other words, skeet plays abusers. The cute, likable, ordinary-looking version of your abuser that you first meet 
meet. The guy you fall in love with before everything goes wrong. Girls in the 90s didn't need to be afraid of Freddy Krueger. They didn't have to worry about ghosts or aliens or sewer monsters. They needed to be afraid of guys like Skeet Ulrich. They still do. Oof. And it's true, because between the craft and Scream, Skeet is playing uh, the villain that I've encountered and faced down a thousand times in my experience. If he wasn't an outright misogynist murderer, he was a passive-aggressive motherfucker who spread rumors because he knew. He knew how to wield his words and destroy your reputation to get what he wanted. Oh, God, has anyone talked to him about, like, how do you feel for being the poster boy of, like... They did an interview, I, again, I saw this in passing, that they did an interview, I think, with him recently about Scream, probably on the 25th anniversary being this month, uh-huh. uh, and he was, I, I just remember seeing the poll quotes, I'd be like, I thought it was a comedy. Oh, dear. And I was like, if that's you playing a comedy, I'm so worried. <laughs> and then the only other stuff I see him in the news for is being on Riverdale and dating someone very, very young. Oh, dear. Oh, skeet. But speaking of very, very young... I have a new source, a a new text that I would like to bring into uh, the faculty of horror because we're nine years in, but we are forever growing and evolving. And um, I'm sure some of you out there know Andrea and I are working on a book. We haven't quite disclosed what that book is about, but um, I invested a hundred plus dollars in buying up old teen magazines from the 90s. Um, I've got a few articles in this one issue, and I'm, and Andrew, I'm going to share some stats with you, and you can, you can come at me and react. Um, but this is from 17 May 1999. Jewel is on the cover, and the, um, headline title on the cover is so cool, Jewel. You know, I've seen these magazines at your house, and I remember when you told me you were ordering them, I was like, I can't wait to dive in. And then when I saw the stack, I was like, I don't know about this. I, don't know. I, I would recommend it. Like, All right. Fun. Uh, we'll do it together. I've already read them. God damn it. Yeah. Um, but this issue in particular is really interesting because it had two articles that I was like, hmm. So this first article is a collab between Seventeen Magazine and Ladies Home Journal. Interesting. Um, And the writer on this is Carmen Renee Thompson. And the collab is a survey about mothers and daughters. Okay. And the relationships between them. So here are a couple stats that I'm just pulling from this article. See, I'm already nervous. Are you nervous? Because I'm nervous because I'm about to say a lot of numbers. 41.7% of teen girls could talk to their moms about sex. 70.9% of moms, quote, know whether their daughter is having sex or not. 48.9% of teen girls think it's cool that their mom dates. 13.1% of teens are, quote, thoroughly disgusted, end quote, by mom dating. Huh. 79.8%, by far the majority, of teens don't want to know about their moms having sex. So I think, you know, I feel like we've maybe touched on this in past episodes, but this um, disconnect between, you know, your mother is your mother, your caretaker is your caretaker, and I don't want to know about their sex lives. The virgin horror binary. You can't be a saint and have sex at the same time. Yeah. And, and I think that's so interesting within Scream because Sydney cannot reconcile 
you know, they're saying your mom's a slut. But like maybe but she I just loved her. I, like, I loved her. And maybe like it's cool that she enjoyed sex and you know, maybe she didn't go about it the right way, but uh, but this real anxiety mm. around who her mom was and us as the audience never knowing her and it's amplified by Sydney then never feeling like she knew her mother. Yeah. She never had her mother's guidance and how to navigate these waters and we don't know if she would have rejected them. Now, after that article, and there's a lot more stats in that article, but uh, those were the ones I picked out. After that, there's a spread about bikinis. Okay. And then there's an article called No, 12 Ways to Make That Little Word Heard by Gail Foreman, and it's about getting guys to stop. 12 ways. So I'm going to give you the 12 ways, and I'm going to just say um, that each of these ways has a little paragraph underneath explaining more about it. But just remember, this is 1999, and we were all real fucked up about sex. Jesus. This is to teen girls. One, know your limits. Two, let him know where your boundaries are. Three, realize that you two may be speaking different languages. No. Four, listen to your intuition. Five, say no again strongly. No. Six, use powerful body language. Seven, don't be afraid to hurt his feelings. Eight, be aware. I'm sorry, what? Be aware of what? I think it was just like, be aware of your surroundings. Okay. Nine, snap out of it and fight back. <laughs> Ten, ban the booze. <laughs> Eleven, drink smart. Because that might alter the meaning of the word no. Okay, yeah. sorry. Uh, Twelve, realize that knowledge is power. And I'm sharing this because I was reading it being like, shit, I read that when I was 14. <laughs> and it's not that like... This, again, was the 90s, and we hadn't gotten over this societal inclination to slut shame. We hadn't— We still haven't. We still haven't. We're doing a bit better now. Well, now it's no means no. Yeah. There's one way. And also, don't rape people. Yeah. Hot tip. But that is, like, a really circular 12 ways to know is no. Yeah. And I just think it was so interesting to me. And and the reason I'm bringing it into the conversation as well as, you know, the stuff about moms is because this is the way we were talking about female sexuality then. Mm -hmm. We were the gatekeepers. We had to be in control of it. And I think you look at the way that, you know, Billy and to a certain degree, Stu, were manipulating Sydney throughout the film to feel like she had to give it up because Billy was owed it. And if she was in a long-term relationship with him, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be a slut like your mom if you do, and that by, excuse my phrasing, but to break the seal, it's going to get her over that hump. (laughs) So many puns. Listen. (laughs) Do you remember, I think it was like, it was a good 10 years ago. I remember because I was still living on my apartment on Bloor, but I procured a copy of Girl Talk. Yes. And I had you over and we had another friend over and let's play girl talk. It'll be fun. It'll be a fun throwback to simpler times. And we were about five minutes into the game before we were like, this is awful. Burn this in a fire. This is making me feel like garbage. That's the board game where like there's a phone and you talk to a guy. No, that's dream phone. That's dream phone. Wait, which one's girl talk? Girl talk is a little, it's a bit more. It's a hard one. Yeah, it's trivia. Like, our friend had just lost her mom the year prior, and it was like, what was the last fight you had with your mom? What do you hate most about your body? What do you, like, you know? like We're like, we can't even play this ironically. We can't even look back on it and be like, oh, isn't that silly? Because it was too dark, and it was too fucked up. Yeah, and, and so I think throughout this, like, kind of darkness and this murkiness of sexuality— 
Scream does kind of navigate a lot of these really strange territories, I think, pretty well. Well, it depicts someone struggling with navigating those territories, which is something that we all had to do in the 90s. Yeah. And I, watching the sex scene this time, you know, I, you know, especially the last few times, you pick up, or I certainly picked up on Sid's, like, kind of struggling in the sex scene, the few scenes that they show of being like, kind of uncomfortable, but then she's like, no, I'm consenting, I'm into this, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, like, a lot of films don't show that. No, they show it as a weakening and not like an empowered decision, a decision made in advance, a decision made that's informed and considered and by a thinking person. Yeah, a thinking and feeling person who, even when she's wrong, you still root for her because she is a human being and human beings learn things and they evolve and they change and kind of the wonderful thing about being a human being. Well, and who hasn't fucked a monster? No one in this room. I would like to talk really briefly about 90s teen culture and death. Because insofar as, you know, the headlines, the true crime, the sex scandals, everything you talked about was very, very salient. There was also a moral panic about death. And there was also a moral panic about suicide and the idea of immortality through death. Kids who got famous for shooting up their schools. Celebrities dying at the peak of their careers and being deified. I'm talking Kurt Cobain. I'm talking Tupac Shakur. I'm talking River Phoenix. There was a huge anxiety about teen violence and suicide. I remember teen suicide being a major, major concern. And I found this article called Cinelimbo, the millennial new age virtual afterlife thriller by Linda Badley. What a great name. Does Linda Badley ring a bell for you? No. I know I came across her. She wrote Film Horror and the Body Fantastic in 1995, which I really enjoyed and I think I employed I I in, um, in my thesis in my my book. She she employs a lot of feminist analysis to body horror. Uh, I'm Andrea. I wrote a book. Shut up. <laughs> anyway, this article wasn't about horror movies, so it almost flew under my radar, but it does tackle the notion that millennials grew up on a diet of movies and TV and media that approached the subject of death in ways that put us at an interesting distance from it. The NDE, the near-death experience, where the dead aren't quite gone. They have this otherworldly, uncanny dreamlike experience that we witness cinematically and because we have no concept of what death is actually like, it really informs our attitudes toward death. For example, if you look at the blockbuster thrillers of the time, you've got Ghost, Flatliners, Ghostbusters, Beetlejuice, even The Sixth Sense. They show that death isn't the end. It's a dreamlike cinematic state and we take the point of view of the dead or the death. We take the point of view of the dead And the death isn't treated with a sense of finality, which essentially amounts to a denial of death. And I feel like slasher films treated death really flippantly, and Scream treats it with a lot more levity. But at the time, there were so many ways to be famous, and death was among them. Mm. And and I think there was kind of that fatalistic streak that you see with Stu and with Billy, is that there's so many ways to gain immortality, death being among them, and that's really fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of where Scream really just brilliantly plays with the gaze, and we've talked about the male gaze, you know, throughout this podcast, and this film, I think, to me, really plays with the slasher gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, most 
least notably in some ways with the music. There's such strong music cues at certain point. Mm-hmm. Uh, one moment to me is um, when Gail and Dewey, they're at like the house party and they're outside and they're going to go on a walk and, you know, see about this car that was abandoned. And there's this really sinister overtone that's supposed to imply like, oh, maybe Dewey's up to something who was originally like part of the killing thing, but I think that got cut. Um, and then most notably to me was after Sid and Billy have sex and, you know, Billy's like, you still think it was me? And then Ghostface shows up and, you know, fake stabs him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do I have to do to prove to you that I'm not a killer? Huh? Oh my god. Sydney. Billy, watch out! Because it is this, like, overture of string music that is supposed to make us as an audience feel like, oh, this poor guy, he just wanted to be her boyfriend all along. And it's truly the film fucking with us Mm -hmm. in in a really smart way. And so I think that kind of tunes you in as if you were, like, how manipulative films can be. How manipulative media can be. And the fact that, you know, very quickly, Sid is not only confronted by both of them, uh, but then overtakes them so quickly and so smartly. And the fact, you know, I still don't think there's a more powerful moment to me in horror cinema than the final girl donning the killer's outfit Mm -hmm. and fucking with them. Mm -hmm. Like, that's pretty incredible to me. Playing their own game and beating them at it. Yeah. And I think there is, you know, Ghostface is is cemented in the annals of horror as a killer, but he's not quite on the same level as Michael Myers, as Freddy Krueger. And it's because we never quite see through his eyes. It doesn't have the conventional slasher POV. And, you know, it keeps us at a distance from him, but it's a distance that I relish. Yeah. And the fact that Ghostface is a moniker that just kind of passes through different characters. It could be anyone. And the fact that Sydney always, like, slaps that person down. I mean, fucking not in my movie. That's a stand-and-cheer moment for me. Yeah. That Oh, I'm getting tingles just thinking about oh, it. Oh, jeez. Also, I want to, like— Shout out to Scream 3 when Sydney confronts the killer in that one. And it's a dude who's like whining about his life. And she just goes, just take some fucking responsibility. Yeah. That's another fucking stand and cheer moment. Agreed. There's a couple in this franchise, you know. I stand this franchise. I I love, you know, that the film, you know, as it goes on with the franchise, it's got the stab films, which seem to be kind of going down this more traditional slasher route. And they get into the stab franchise in Scream 4, which I think is kind funny. Um, And that's very much Gail's narrative. That's the narrative she set out and that the industry is kind of carrying on with as we learn about in Scream 4. And I think the Scream films are actually Sydney's narrative. So we are the privileged audience that gets to kind of see through the the curtain. We get to look past all the bullshit. And while the bullshit might get thrown at us as an audience to kind of throw us off various scents, we still get to see at the end some kind of true reconciliation, some kind of true understanding of humanity and life and death. And um, and plus, like, on top of all that heavy shit, these movies are fun. 
Yeah. And interesting and like deep and funny and quotable and watchable and great casts, career making roles for everyone involved. And, you know, like they hold up. I love these movies. I don't have much more to say except I love them. Well, let's talk about your trepidation. Do you feel like you've, you know, I feel like this story is almost still unfolding. Like we're in a place where horror is doing certain things and we're not really, we're not leaning as hard on the slasher because it's not quite as close to us in in, in cinematic history as it was in the 90s. But I think the fact that these films still hold up and that they were commercially successful and critically successful and yet... You know, they kind of represented a moment of dude bro flexing. And I think that's the thing is I'm seeing more and more and hearing more and more from various people um, in the horror community, outside of the horror community who are our age and younger, just being like, yeah, this is horror canon. Yeah. And I feel like that's really manifested in the fact that there's a new one on the horizon and people are no longer afraid to be like, oh, shit, I am ready. I love these films. I grew up on them. They introduced me to horror. They informed me about horror. And I'm ready for more 25 years later. Fucking give me it. Yeah. As I alluded before, you know, Rue Morgue, I, I, I was in touch with the people making these films. And I was like, you know, do you want to cover? Yeah, I want to cover. What can you give me? Uh, Sydney's coming back. <laughs> Ghostface is back. We've got these really studio photos of Ghostface holding a knife. I'm like, that is not enough. They're being very cloak and dagger, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, about what's coming. But I, I think at the very least, it's going to be a fact flash. Yes. So fact flashes for anyone who is uninitiated are on our Patreon feed, which is always linked in the show notes and various places. And that's where Andrea and I will venture out to see a new horror film. We'll have a little pre-record and, you know, give our thoughts and feelings before we see it. We'll go see it and then immediately come back and give you our, like, hot takes, our Hot takes. Fresh, fresh thoughts. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm nearly certain that's going to be uh, Scream 5, or as it's now just called Scream. I fucking hate that. I hate that. <laughs> I'm still excited, but I'm going to call it Scream 5. Yeah, I am too. Just for clarity. Just don't, sake. like, you don't need to call it Halloween again. <laughs> Anyway, but, you know, that is for later. In the meantime, we are going to be working on our January episode, which historically has been our year in review episode. 2021 has sucked balls, but there's been some interesting horror stuff. I mean, I got vaccinated. That's hot. Science has happened, and it was all right. Science has happened to some of us. Science has happened to some of us. The... Informed and conscientious, and horror has happened to us, and uh, we've enjoyed it from the safety of our own home. I'm excited for us to compare notes. I have a lot of catching up to do. I mean, this is always the case in December, is I feel like I'm cramming for, what didn't I watch this year? What didn't come down? Yeah. So yeah, January is 2021 year in review. Some other fun stuff to go in that episode. It's a really good catch-up episode. Bloopers! I mean, I can't imagine we're going to have too many bloopers. No. We're such pros at it. And yeah, this is the last month to get our class of 2021 merchandise. That's right. Uh, incredible exclusive artwork by Slutficate. Uh, again, linked in the show notes on our social media. Um, please go check it out. Uh, Patreon is forever available with lots of content. We're going to be recording some extra stuff tonight and next weekend. Oh my gosh. So much back. 
so much, Fackery. Happy holidays. Whatever you're celebrating this month, you know, it's a stressful time. It's a dark time. It's an uncertain time. Please do whatever it takes to enjoy it. Yeah. Do what you need to do, and hopefully you get to find some joy in it. And uh, don't ever let anyone fuck with your movie. And until 2022, office hours are closed. I live in a town called Mill Haven And it's small and it's mean and it's cold But if you come around just as the sun goes down You can watch the whole thing turn to gold It's around then that I used to go a-roaming La 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 la, la 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 Oh God's children, they all gotta die My name is Loretta, but I prefer Lottie I'm closing in on my 15th year If you think that you've seen a pair of eyes more green Then you sure haven't seen them around here Well, my hair is a yellow and I'm always a cold man La 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 la, la 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 My mama often told me that we all got to die you must have heard about the curse of Millhaven How last Christmas Bill Blakey's little boy didn't come home They found him the next week up in One Mile Creek With his head bashed in and his pockets full of stones Well just imagine all of the wailing moaning La 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 la, la 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 Even Bill Blakey's boy, he had to die uh, then Professor O'Reilly from Millhaven High Found nailed to his door his prize-winning terrier The next day the old fool brought little Biko to school And we all had to watch as he buried her While his eulogy to Biko had all the tears flowing La 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 Even God's little creatures they have to die our little town fell into a state of shock A lot of people were saying things that made little sense The next thing you know, the head of Handyman Joe Was found in the fountain of the mayor's residence Well, foul play can really get a small town going La 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 la, la 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 Even God's children, they have to die Then a cruel twist Oh, Mrs. Colgate was stabbed, but the job was not complete. Well, the last thing she said before the cop pronounced her dead was, My killer is Loretta, and she lives across the street. Oh, 20 cops burst through my door without even phoning. La 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 la, la 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 The young ones and the old ones, they all got to die. Yes, it is I, Lottie, the curse of Millhaven. I've struck horror in the heart of this town. Like my eyes ain't green and my hair ain't yellow. It's more like the other way around. I got a pretty little mouth underneath all the foaming. La 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 la, la 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 la. Sooner or later, we all gotta die.
since I was no bigger than a weevil They've been saying I was evil That a bed was a boot that I'd fit it That I'm a wicked young lady But I've been trying hard lately Oh, fuck it, I'm a monster, I admit it Well, it makes me so mad That my blood starts a-going la 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 Mama always told me that we all gotta die Well, yeah, I drowned the Bailey kid Stabbed Mrs. Colgate, I admit Did the handyman with his circular saw In his garden shed But I never crucified little Bico That was through junior high school cycles Stinky Bohoon and his friend with a pumpkin-sized head I sing to the lot Now that you got me going la 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 God's children have all got to die Then they're all of the others All our sisters and brothers You assume were accidents best forgotten uh, Recall the children who broke through The ice on Lake Tahoe Everyone assumed a warning signs And followed them to the bottom Well, they're underneath the house Where I do quite a bit of stowing La 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 Even twenty little children thought they had to die and the fire in 91 that raised the Bella Vista slum That was the biggest shit fight this country's ever seen Insurance companies ruined landlords Getting sued all cause of a wee little girl With a can of gasoline Those flames really roared When the wind started blowing La 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 Well a rich man and a poor man They all gotta die Well, I confessed to all these crimes and they put me on trial I was laughing when they took me away After to the asylum in an old black Mariah Well, it ain't home, but you know it's better than jail It ain't such a bad old place to have a home in La 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 Oh God, children, they all gotta die now I got shrinks who will not rest with their endless Rorschach tests I keep telling them that I think they're up to get me They ask me if I feel remorse And I answer why I cost There's so much more I could have done if they'd let me So it's Rorschach and Prozac and everything is groovy La 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 Yes la 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 While all God's children they all have to die